Amen. Okay, y'all, this is it. We are at the end, the end of Revelation. Can you believe it? We've looked at uh, 20 sermons in Revelation. All of your confusion has been cleared up. All your riddles have been solved. Uh, All the mysteries have been explained. In fact, all your questions have been answered, right? Um, Yeah, not hardly. Maybe a little, hopefully a little. But some of you, though, remain very disappointed because there was no seven years of tribulation. There was no rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. There was no left behind. There was no 144,000, literally, Jewish Billy Grahams running around preaching the gospel to the last people on the planet. Uh, There was no single, historical, epic antichrist to look for and his his false prophet to listen for. Uh, There was no implanted 666 chip inside of you. And I'm sorry for those of you that live in Hewitt and have that number on your telephone. There's no timeline. There was no timeline for the last days, when it was all going to go down. We didn't map out a timeline so that you know when it's all going down. We didn't map out. We didn't look at the last battle of Armageddon, how it all goes down, what leaders are involved, what nations are involved, what locations are involved. And for that, I'm really sorry. I really am but I do want to help you. And here's how I want to help you. If you have figured out the date of Jesus' second coming and you think and have projected that it's probably near, like in the fall, I know that you are filled with anxiety of what to do with all your money and your bank account and all your stocks and your growing retirement funds. I am here to help you. (laughs) I am here to serve you. All right, y'all, we are at the end. Um, one, you could probably see it. Uh, it starts around June. It, it, usually when I get in the spring, it's, I start thinking, you know, I'm really getting tired because I'm getting ready for my break. And right around June, I start crawling to July. Well, when I got this passage and I started thinking about, okay, 21 and 22. <laughs> do you know we're looking at Revelation 21 and 22 this morning? How do you end this thing? There are an infinite number of sermons, an infinite number of messages in 21 and 22. Which one do we go with? What's the big idea of 21 and 22? And so I really started crawling. I really started fatiguing this week, just thinking through how to end this thing. So how do we end Revelation? That's the question this morning. How do you end it? What message do we end with? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you grant that we be strengthened with power by your spirit in our innermost being so that Jesus would dwell in our hearts through faith. So help us, teach us, enable us to become strong in the Lord. That is the strength of his might. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Paul Tripp is a very, very influential biblical counselor with years and years and years of experience. He's a popular author. He's a speaker. He's a leader in the Christian church. It seems that when uh, Christian leaders or pastors are in trouble, that's who they go to. He's almost like a pastor of pastors. Uh, and he was very impressed with a guy named Phil. Uh, Phil is greatly conversant with the scriptures and greatly conversant in theology and doctrine. In fact, he has this extensive library of every great work practically that's been written by pastors and Christian works and biographies and theological works and biblical commentaries uh, and church history from the past and from the present. Uh, Tripp says, there were few places I could go in scripture and few theological references that I could make that were new to Phil. He knew everything. He teaches, Phil teaches theology classes at his church, he leads Bible studies, he's a leader in the church, he's knowledgeable, he's gifted, he's talented, he's active, uh, he's committed to holiness, but something is dreadfully wrong with Phil. 
Phil's marriage has been a wreck from day one. Phil is easily irritated. He's often explosive. His relationship to his grown children could be best described as distant in the best possible way. Uh, he is constantly pointing out everything that's wrong all around him at home, at work, at church. Phil has dragged his family to four different churches over the years that all in the same town. No church is ever good enough. They don't believe the right things. They don't believe the right things hard enough. They don't do the right things, obey the right things, worship the right things. They don't lead the right way. They don't do the right ministry. Phil isn't, it's important to point out, addicted to any substance or pornography. Probably some of you are going there. Oh, the dude's addicted to porn. That's usually what everyone thinks is wrong with anyone that has a problem. Phil would never divorce his wife, forsake his family, self-consciously break any of God's laws, but something is profoundly wrong with Phil. When Tripp met with Phil and his wife for the first time, he let them talk for the whole session. Tripp said, there was something strange about their story, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And he said, on his way home while he's driving home, it hit him in the car. He said, they had given me an extensive history, yet there was little or no reference to God, no personal experience of God. Here was a theological giant and his believing wife, yet their life story was utterly Godless, end quote. From his vast counseling experience, Tripp says church people have a profound problem. We suffer from a great gap in our lives. We suffer from the great gap between our head <laughs> and our heart. That our beliefs don't make it to our bones that the data doesn't get downloaded and internalized. In fact, one person puts it this way, which I think is so profound, the longest and most dangerous distance on the planet is the mere 12 inches from the head to the heart. We, we all need to experience God more. Now, before we start running off and thinking, ah, yeah, I'm going to experience God perhaps more in music. That's fine. Experience God more in an anointed leader. Okay. Experience God more through a church tradition. Mm. Experience God more through some biblical principle. Not quite. What we are going to look at today is that the place that God has set for you and I to experience Him is in the Bible In the Word, the Word. So some of you are thinking, though, not me, though. Good night. I'm not like Phil and his wife. I didn't, my head matches my heart, as far as I can tell. Um, Revelation 21 and 22 is the Mount Everest of the Bible. I think everybody acknowledges that. It's the end of the Bible. It's the last part of the Bible. I didn't realize, well, if you want to count the measures, the weights and measures at the end of your Bible, this is the end of the Bible. The maps, all that kind of stuff. This is it. This is the highest peak in the Bible, which everyone agrees on, which is probably why what we are about to look at is so missed and overlooked. It's like it's invisible. 
It's phenomenal. I, I looked at all the commentaries. I looked at works, and, and I never saw anyone comment on this. It was all because what we have here, what we are about to look at, y'all, few people see in the last two chapters. Isn't that crazy? Right after Jesus says these stunning words, which is he says, and behold, I'm coming soon, in 27, right? Look at the very next verse in 28. We didn't read it. It says 22, 8. So right at the end of Revelation, there is a mere 12 verses left. <laughs> we're in the epilogue. We're at the end game. We're at the final. We're at the peak. We are on Everest. We're planting our flag. Hear these stunning words. Behold, I am coming soon. Next, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of, of course, God. The feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, dude, you must not do that. Worship God. Can you imagine? Now, this is the second time he's had to say that to John. <laughs> this angel, as we talked about last time, he can't wait for John to get his glory self. He is fed up with the way John tends to worship him throughout given unbelievable visions and revelations of God, right in the middle of the most incredible library of theological works in the universe. John gets to see it, and in the midst of it, it doesn't make it to his heart. He worships an angel. I feel for John. I feel for the guys in the Bible that just blow it royally. Don't you? I mean, you and I blow it royally, but it's not written down for everyone in church history to go and say, oh, yeah, what a doofus. Oh, how, how could he do that, right? They're always judged. But the insider, the one that knows he fails or she fails, it's like, oh, man. I feel for him because you know what he's basically saying in this passage? He's saying at the end of the book, the Mount Everest of the Bible, yep, I did that. Yep, I'm the one that got to see and record all this incredible stuff about God, all this incredible stuff about his gospel, all this incredible stuff about Jesus, all this incredible stuff about the, the meaning and mystery of life on earth. I'm the one that got to do that. And I blew it. At the end of it all, I worshiped an angel, not God. At the end, I worshiped an angel. Do not miss how easy it was for the apostle to have this mile and mile gap between his head and his heart. So how are we doing? Well, we need to experience God more. Everyone in this room needs to experience God more. The root issue to all your issues is the lack of experiencing God more. And we need to experience him in the Bible. So we have a book on God's sovereignty, right? You have one on your shelf, and you probably can argue with anybody about that, some of you in this room. I know you. I know you can, you can argue God's sovereignty or the five points of Calvinism, and yet you worry and you're anxious. We understand the powerful seductions of the city of man, don't we? We understand the powerful seductions of Babylon that we just looked at. But we hope in money. We hope in our beauty. We hope in our gifts and our talents. 
We hope in political power. We hope in bad internet sites. We say we believe in God's grace, right? We say we believe in the grace of the Lamb in this book. We say we believe in the wonder of His worth and His work. We say we believe in God's gospel, but yet we live out of and off of like we are a piranha, our performance, trying to suck life, blood out of our performance and human approval. And then not only that, we're demanding and we're critical and we're judgmental and we're, we're always on God's side at home. God is always on our side. He's on our side at home. He's on our side at work. He's on our side because we're always on the right side. We need, all of us need to experience God more, right? I know I do. So how do we? First answer is in the Bible. But let's get a little more specific. The answer from Revelation 21 and 22 is this. By a life-changing power, not a biblical principle. The way you and I experience God more is by a life-changing power, not a biblical principle. One of my favorite illustrations is this. A biblical principle is like taking a piece of glass and planting it in the ground and watering it and fertilizing it and being the glass whisperer saying, oh, man, you're wonderful. Grow, flourish, be fruitful. A biblical principle will not grow like a piece of glass will not grow because it has no life in it. It has no power in it. In fact, if that is what we do, what we literally do is slice people's hearts with a piece of glass. That's why the Bible, that's why Peter says the gospel, though, is an imperishable seed. And it gets planted and it grows because it carries divine life and divine power in it. The life is in the seed. The life and the power is in the, the gospel. And so what we need to experience more is, is that, right? We need to experience a life-changing power, not a biblical principle. Look at Revelation 21.5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now we have come to the epicenter that shakes the whole book of Revelation. We have now come to the sun by which all the planets in Revelation orbit around. Behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. This, a biblical principle goes like this. Jesus is making all things new, you know. You know, the old... The old stuff, your sin and evil, has been defeated by the good stuff, the new stuff. Therefore, let's seek God and be holy. Let's, let's not do those sins. Let's be kind to each other. That's what a biblical principle does. But a life-changing power goes like this. Jesus is making all things new. This means his death does something. This means his resurrection does something. This means he is doing something right now. And when we believe that and when we trust that in specific ways and specific areas of our life, we connect to his realm of power. We experience Jesus in the salvation. We connect 
to reality. Why does Paul pray in every one of his books? He gives these magnificent theological treaties on the wonders of Jesus in Colossians and Ephesians. And immediately after he does, he prays that that becomes real. And he prays what? That you would be strengthened with power. Where? In your innermost being. Why? So Jesus dwells in your heart through faith so that you trust Jesus. Because faith is this appointed way by which we connect to the realities of the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus is not saying, I will make all things new one day, future tense. This is not future tense. Now, this is shocking because we would expect future tense here because everything in 21 and 22 is future. Everything in 21 and 22 is future except this statement. I mean, let's look at it. You've got the new heavens and the new earth in the very verse beginning, 21, 1 through 5. Everything sad becomes untrue. Everything glad or flourishing becomes permanently true. You've got a new home, and what's stunning about this new home in verse 3, what's stunning about this new home is not our home that's emphasized first, it's God's home that's emphasized first. So he says, here's my home, my home, you are my home. That's breathtaking. The first thing that we hear about this new heavens and the new earth is God saying, not welcome home. He's saying, you are my home. My home is with you. Welcome home. First love. First power. And then you get in there and you see, you get this in 21, 9 through 22, this new glory self, which is just astounding. You could have 50 sermons on that. You have a new glory people or community also in 21, 9 through 22, another million sermons. And then you have a new glory relationship with God. In other words, you have complete comprehensive in the images of the tree of life, in the images of the water of life. You have complete, comprehensive, permanent, fully experienced relationship with God, a full free experience of God because you see his face. And remember, no one can see his face and live. But in that day, we do. You want and I long for an experience with God and God is saying, hold on, you will get it more than you know. The future tense is what's expected here, but Jesus is saying, I am making present tense. Amidst all this future stuff going on in 21 and 22, Jesus steps in and says, I am making all things new now. This is a life-changing power, not a biblical principle. Some of you are discouraged when you hear these words, though, I'm making all things new. Why? Because you look at your life and you say there's not a lot of new going on. I'm going to read verse 5 literally, and I'm going to read it with the original punctuation, because if you have the ESV, I don't know what the NIV did. I don't know what the NASV did. I don't know what the New King James or the Old King James did. I know that the ESV 
missed the punctuation from the original language. So here it goes. You ready? Behold, I am making all things new, and he said. In other words, there's no period after all things new. The sentence continues. Are you with me? There's a period in your ESV, what we just read. So it's almost like, okay, here's one thought, move on to the next thought. But there's no period in the original language. It continues. Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. Write what down? That I am making all things new. For these words are trustworthy and true. Why? It's almost like Jesus is anticipating our discouragement. He's anticipating everyone looking at their lives and despairing. Everyone looking at their lives and crying out, where is the new Where's all the new in my marriage? Where's all the new in my kids? Where's all the new in losing my boyfriend? Where's all the new in struggling with another bout of depression? Where's all the new while I worry anxiously about paying the bills? Where's all the new? And Jesus' response to our discouragement is, He takes an oath. He makes a promise. He gives you his word. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. I am making all things new now. This is a life-changing power. This is not a biblical principle. But I've tried so hard, I've worked so hard on my marriage, on my anger, on my guilt, on my sexual sin, on my shame, on my anxiety, on my depression, my relationship with my kids, my obedience, my holiness. I've worked so hard at loving people. I've worked so hard at my relationship with God. I have worked so hard and I don't see a lot of new. And Jesus says, I am making all things new, not you. You don't make anything new. And you can't even get rid of the stuff that's old. Notice what's happening in 21.2. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, is coming down from God, not coming up from us. Do you see that? It's coming down from God, not coming up from us. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is grace, active grace in action. It is God coming down. It is the reality of of being changed and being made new comes from God. It literally says, from God coming down. This is grace in action. So the the call here amidst amidst Jesus making all things new, one of the first first things we can do is start trusting that he makes it new, not in your hard work. Start trusting more that he makes it new, not you, not me. It's not about me making myself come up to God. It's God coming down to us, and that's what's called the grace of God. And remember, this is all tied into the glory of God. If you really want to glorify God, you are consumed with grace. Because grace says, I need you, and you alone can do it. And he is exalted as God and Lord and Savior and the fountain of living water. But if you are so committed to your hard work, so committed to you trying to make yourself rise up, you actually dishonor God. You steal glory from him because he alone can do it. 
See how this works? Notice who is doing the preparing in 21.2. The bride, a Christian, is prepared by Jesus, not prepared by us. We don't prepare ourselves. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I always tell you, God is in the grammar. If you have a pen or a pencil, circle that word prepared. That's called, it's in the passive tense. It's a divine passive. Jesus prepares you. Jesus acts upon you. Jesus adorns you. Jesus makes you beautiful. Jesus loves you to life again is the image here. He is the husband loving his bride to life. So trust in that. Trust in his love. Watch it change you. Some of you are thinking, okay, well, what about the Old Testament? You know how David said his life changed? He says, I love your love for me, therefore I keep your law. It's all over the Psalms. There is no life change. There is no keeping the law apart from an experience of his love. There is none. There is none. But I can't seem to love well, you say. I, I lack a generous heart. Um, I look at I look at the people I love and I look at the strangers I see and I meet them with a critical judgmental eye. I divide people into groups. I divide people into groups of good people and bad people, righteous people and unrighteous people, holy people and unholy people, the attractive people and the ugly people, the athletic and the unathletic, the musical, the non-musical, the disciplined and the lazy. I'm constantly dividing people into groups. I'm constantly making distinctions and I can't stop. I accept some people, and I withhold relationship for other people. Notice what Jesus says in 21.6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In other words, he's saying, look, the thirsty drink, the full do not. The thirsty drink. But when we're full of ourselves, we're not thirsty. We don't drink. So here's what we can do. You know how you get thirsty? You confess that. You confess that you're full of yourself. You confess your active trust in yourself. And confession is just being honest, so you're, you're, you're connecting with reality when you admit what you're really like, and I'm really like. And so when I confess sin, it's one of the most real things a human being can do on this planet. Confession is the most humane thing that we can do on this planet. We admit what we're really like. We're thirsty. And the thirsty drink. Don't miss how we connect to the water of life. Did you see that there? To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. In other words, we connect to the water of life not because we earned it, not because we paid it. We made a payment. We connect to the water of life because Jesus earned it, because Jesus made the payment with his death, with his perfect life of righteousness, his perfect life of loving God, his perfect life of loving others, his perfect life of not dividing people into groups. His perfect kindness, his perfect compassion, his perfect relationship to money, his perfect relationship to sex, 
his perfect relationship to everything in the world. He, by being perfect, he, by dying, he, by rising, earned it, made the payment so you and I can drink. We connect to the water of life because Jesus earned it. Behold, I am making all things new. Y'all, this is a life-changing power, not a biblical principle. So what I want to do, and I'm making it up as we go, I want this summer to be the prayer of this church and the prayer of all of us here and all of us that are going to the four winds as we do during the summer, that we would ask God to help us experience him more in the gospel. Oh God, may we experience you more in Jesus and his salvation. May we experience you more in the Bible. Bible.